Thanks for listening to Bullseye. We'd like to better understand who's listening and how you're using podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. One word. It takes less than 10 minutes. It really helps support the show. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. One word. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. If you're looking for something to stream these days, maybe a reason to laugh, I have a recommendation. A comedy special called Bangin' by Nikki Glaser. It is so funny. Nikki is, of course, an accomplished stand-up comic. She has also hosted shows on Comedy Central and MTV. She makes regular appearances in all the roasts. If you've seen her in one of those, you probably remember her delivering the most devastating cutting joke in a night dedicated to devastating cutting jokes. A lot of her stand-up is about sex, so we'll be talking a lot about sex in the interview. If you or someone you're with might be sensitive to that, uh, just a heads up uh, that that is what we're chatting about. Anyway, let's kick things off with a clip from her stand-up special, Bangin'. She's talking about how she often felt like she wasn't pretty enough as a child. I kind of had an idea that I wasn't that cute, you know, because I had a really beautiful sister growing up, never went through an awkward phase. Um, she would just, so stunning. She literally would stop traffic when I pushed her in front of it and um, <laughs> tried to get her out of the way. And I'm the second prettiest sister, and then there isn't another one, but um, <laughs> so I've got that. But people would stop my mom as a child and tell my mom that my sister should be a model like right in front of me and be like, this child needs to be a model. And they wouldn't see me at first, and then I'd emerge from behind my mom's legs like Nosferatu, like, what should I be? <laughs> Just like desperate to be discovered or whatever. And they're like, you should be a, a you're gonna be a model train enthusiast, probably. I think you should start collecting soon. Nikki Glazer, welcome back to Bullseye. It's really nice to talk to you again. It's nice to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. When you were putting this special together, did you have 20 minutes of sexual material that we can't talk to specifically about on mm -hmm. national public radio or did you develop 20 minutes of sexual material that we can't talk to specifically about on national public radio in order to make this special i already had it i mean it was it was that's already what i i, I don't ever write material and for anything specifically when it comes to stand-up i'm never like well this is going to be a special that says this or it's just whatever is interesting to me at that time so this hour of material on banging is what is just my, it's, I just picked an hour out of like two hours of material I'm always doing and kind of like was like, oh, I guess these are similar themes, but it all is the same. I've been talking about the same stuff for my whole career. I realize I'm just getting better at doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I have the same interest. Like every, I really, you watch any of my specials and it's just a younger person just dealing with the same stuff. It's just, I'm getting, I'm just getting older and my, my act stays the same age and I just keep getting older. 
I think there's a lot of stand-up comedy about sex, and there has been for quite a long time. I think yours is a little different. Do you notice that you talk about different things about sex on stage relative to you know the other folks that you see doing 15-minute sets before and after you? Yeah, I don't really notice that, to be honest with you. I'd have to have someone kind of tell me what how mine is different. I know that... I talk about it more. It's a subject that comes up more to me, but I've never really examined it or judged it because it's just, it's never felt forced. And as long as something's not kind of me trying to be something, there's no need for me to like analyze it and be like, why am I doing this? It just is like, it's just how I think. And it is interesting to me though, that I'm kind of known as this sex comic when I have less sex than anyone I know. (laughs) And, um, and I've had less sexual partners than anyone I know. I mean, I'm really not someone who, um, should be even talking about these things. And I think that's why I talk about them so much is because I am so, um, scared of it. I talk about what I'm scared of. I mean, I think that sex is a topic that you can go to on stage because it has a lot of punch and a, a lot of comics use it that way. And some some do a really particularly great job. One of the things that I was impressed with about your special is that with the sheer volume of sex jokes, and some of them really are joke jokes, you know, I mean, you're a great writer of joke jokes you've you know that's how you become a celebrated roast performer you know you take a premise and write 40 jokes about it and four of them are perfect and you use those yes um but i think there's something i think there's something kind of sweet about the sex jokes in your special (laughs) which caught me by surprise every single time. I mean, it caught me by surprise for 20 straight minutes to open the (laughs) special, you know, like, and it's not just, it's not, there's, you know, your sex jokes are vulnerable, but it's not just that. I think I'm just so used to seeing people tell jokes about sex that are like, (laughs) yes, I think I know what you're saying. I think, yeah, they're so in your face. They can be so gross. And I could be pretty disgusting. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to talk about sex without being kind of viscerally unpleasant at times. But it's it's never my intent to, like, gross someone out. It's just, like, my intent, if I gross someone out, is to be like, can you believe we do this? And that's what I think so much of my sense of humor stemmed from is, like, growing up in a house and growing up in a community that like we didn't talk about sex. I didn't know anything about it. It was very um, shameful. And I, I was so curious about it. I was always met with complete silence whenever I asked my parents about their sex life, which I did as a kid, I was always like curious about what sex was and like who was having it and when, and what did it look like and why? And Um, my parents would just like ignore me. They wouldn't even be like, we don't talk about that. They would just pretend they didn't hear me. The time I remember that was the most awkward, um, was I was probably like nine and I just had the realization that perhaps my parents had been with people before each other, like that they didn't begin with me. And so I remember just kind of be, we were on a long road trip and it was the beginning of a road trip. My cousins were in the minivan, my mom, my dad in the front seat. And, um, and I just go, dad. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, did you ever have sex with someone besides before mom? And I swear to you, no one said anything. 
it just we were we just drove in silence until their the next rest stop and then we could all talk again like it was that weird and so i learned early on that like there was something that i wasn't that i was kept being kept from there was some world that i didn't get to know about that sounded like so good because people aren't talking about it like what are they hiding and then as soon as i was able to have sex and my friends were starting to have sex i was it 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 turned into a real fear of it that i was going to be bad at it that i um i just i just was as fascinated as i was by it i was terrified of it and i think those go hand in hand and it, it it continues to be that for me i mean um my special really talks about the difference between being someone who drinks and someone who doesn't when you have sex and i think a lot of uh, younger kid i think a lot of people have have sex because they're able to get drunk enough to do it, but I don't drink anymore. And so I'm kind of exploring having to have sex again. I feel like I'm a child, like, like a, you know, a, a preteen again of like, how do you even do this? So I'm, I'm constantly reexamining that like curiosity and the, the feeling that I'm kind of left out from it. Did you have the same fear and discomfort around romance that you had around sex as a, a like a, I was going to say kid, but more like a, an adolescent, like a teenager. I think that is what I'm more scared of now. The idea I used to yearn for that as a kid. I used to I, romantic comedies. I am, a, I'm a sucker for all of them. You've got mail is my favorite movie. I love romance. I've never been in a relationship in which it has been shown to me in any way. I choose people that have no interest in being romantic with me. So there is some kind of, I think that's my real fear now is, um, is of, sex intimacy but romance I just I have a pretty I have pretty bad self-esteem as most comedians do I just tend to admit it and talk about it a little bit more because I don't like it and it's hard for me to convince myself that someone like the idea of romance is like really me why me like I just feel like whenever someone's like attracted to me sexually I even question that I'm just like I just feel like I'm I'm too goofy for that. So I just feel like I really do feel like a clown most times of like why would you want to you know, can I say the f word on here? I'm so sorry. Why would you want to have mean, sex you with a clown? I did. I did. I really did. So you can is the answer. May you? Different answer. We, I won't again. We we will have bleeped it out. Okay, well I won't again cuz I I'm trying to be better about cussing. But um yes, I feel uh I feel like a preteen clown most of the time. <laughs> I really do. I feel like just awkward um middle schooler like brace face and so now I've I'm I'm cool. I'm in the cool kids like I'm finally popular. I'm at the popular lunch table, but I didn't get there the way I wish I would have, which is like just by being attractive enough that people like you. I really I mean that's what my whole next special is about is like You know, and you heard in that clip, it's just feeling like, man, things would be a lot easier if I was a lot uh, prettier and I resent it. And I know I'm pretty, but like I still struggle with it. I mean, you went into the field where I mean, if you're going to go into the entertainment industry, uh, maybe radio is a be- even better example. But yeah. comedy, stand up comedy is pretty much the one where where you can go into it being moderately good looking and you get up on a stand-up comedy stage you're the you're the best looking person anybody's seen all night you know yes I that was intentional I mean I don't think it was intentional but 
like I say, I'm, I, I'm a comedy nine, but like take me out of comedy and I'm, you know, I'm clinging to a, a mid range seven most days and that's fine. It just is what it is. But yes, I, I tend to get more attention for being an attractive. Oh, you're one of you're attractive for a comedian. I'm like, no kidding. That's I chose this for like I I needed to <laughs> I needed to pick something where I'd stand out. And yeah, and I'm not kidding you, Jesse. As soon as I could, I as soon as I started aging, which you start I've been aging forever, obviously, but like as soon as I started feeling aging, I was like. I, I couldn't I couldn't have sprinted quicker to a radio show and building my broadcasting <laughs> skills because I know where it's going as a woman. My face is falling. And as much as we love our Francis McDormans and our Meryl Streep's and then after that, we run out of examples because people like Hollywood does hate older women and you can't convince me otherwise. There are exceptions always. It's just not a good show. Hollywood's not a good place to be as a woman. And um, that's why I do radio and stand up. It's the only place where you're allowed to kind of age, but not even. One of the things about stand up comedy is that when you are a stand up comedy performer, the feedback loop is like very clear and direct. It's very easy to distinguish between people laughing at your joke and people not laughing at your joke. (laughs) And you started stand-up comedy pretty young. And I wonder if that was part of the appeal for you that here was a place where at least, even if you, you know, most most people aren't especially great when they start stand-up comedy, but even if you're not especially great, you can at least figure out what you can do that people definitely like and you can tell because they told you by laughing at it. Yes, I, it's it's that immediate response that these people like me. I di- I didn't have to be I didn't it, I mean it, my my sense of humor grew out of the fact that I I had a, a raging eating disorder when I went to school and um my freshman year and I had no friends and no one wanted to be friends with me cuz I looked so sick and I just developed but I didn't even mean to, but I just became really funny. Cause I was like, I gotta, I gotta create a diversion from people thinking I need help because I, I wanted to like be in my disease. I didn't want help. I didn't want to make, make everyone worried about me. So I just became really funny. And that's what led me to stand up Cause people said, you got, you should do stand up. You're funny. And then as soon as I tried stand up, that that you're ta- the exact thing you're talking about the validation the laughter the we like you i felt it wash over me immediately i knew exactly what i wanted to do the rest of my life it was like it was like a drug and it and it continues to be like a drug i mean i don't know that stand up is all has been all of that it's 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 given me so many riches in life but it's also caused me a lot of pain because I have become obsessed with it and ha- until this quarantine, I needed to do it every single night. And if I didn't, I felt some sort of deficiency. I felt less than um, because it was also the first time and I had been searching for to be something interest to be special at something i was smart but i wasn't the smartest i was good at swimming i wasn't the best i just was always so freaking average and the first time i did stand up i was i was good like i just had a knack for it and it was undoubtedly like what i should be doing everything it was first time something clicked and i was like okay yes i'm finally good at something i finally am special in some way and I think that that's what a lot of standups are seeking is like they just didn't feel special growing up and they finally do. And um, and now I'm addicted to it, uh, like completely addicted to to the spotlight. And 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 I realize that it's 
it's empty and a lot of times it's fulfilling in beautiful ways but it's still something that isn't real you know it's not real love the the cheers from a crowd or the laughter it's not like some that that's that didn't save me during this my fans didn't save me during the quarantine I had to go back home with my parents like it's not real love so I'm realizing that it's kind of empty and especially having to be away from it I'm like okay I gotta find something new a working comics you know a big part of a working comics life most working comics is set 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 sets like what sets have you got how many sets have you got tonight how many sets have you got this week? How yep. much stage time do you have this week? And that is not a possibility for anybody. Right no, now. it's, I'm thinking the same thing. I, I have more of a handle over it now and, and, and uh, I've been doing it so long and re and, and I've, I've gotten burnout from doing it so many times in terms of like just repetition set, 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 set. And then I just show up at a club crying cause I'm so tired and I don't even know what to say. And I've had those, I, I always like overdose and I need like intervention. And I was about to hit one right before this quarantine, but I'm seeing comics who haven't been through it before and are really addicted to it kind of spiraling out and I worry about them because these are really lonely men who are not in touch with their feelings and have no intention to be in, to come in touch with their feelings and they don't realize that the hours uh, these guys that used to do you know seven hour sets back in the day like Chappelle would go on stage people would be like he did seven hours or Dane Cook would do like four hours at the comedy store I never was that impressed by that to be honest with you I've always thought that was kind of sad and I I I know Dane well, and he'd probably admit it too. Like you just don't want to get off stage because you don't want to feel your feelings. You don't want to be back in your life. It's numbing. And for me, it's totally um, a drug. And so much so that I've seen it parallel other things I've been addicted to in my life. Like I towards right before the quarantine, I was getting on stage and I would say for the past three years, I've gone on stage every single night at least, you know, cause if you add up the multiple sets I do, I, I just never take a night off. And I got to the point where I would get off stage and someone would go, how was that? And it would be, I was just 30 seconds ago on stage and I'd, and they're in the other room. So they don't know. And I'd say, I don't know. I couldn't even tell you. I wasn't even the high wouldn't even last to the next room. And it used to be the high would last weeks because you only get on stage once every two weeks at the open mic. And now it wouldn't last after I hung up the mic. Like it was only in the moment that it would feel good. And it was starting to feel like not even good then. I could be I could be on stage and thinking about something totally different. So I, it kind of got away from me, even though it was still something I was doing every night. This has allowed me a chance to reflect and be like, what do I love about it? And what do I want to do when I go back on stage? Have you had any insight in that reflection the biggest insight i've had is i don't really miss it um to be honest with you i've really gotten my fill from doing radio and um from doing podcasts like uh, i feel like i've gotten what i need to out of my system in terms of being creative and i'm spreading the message i want to spread there's I'm still getting to exercise my ability to joke right and to um, perform a set by doing things like Bill Maher or going on Conan. Like there are outlets for me to do organized comedy that isn't just, you know, stream of consciousness radio or podcasting, but stand up itself. I, 
I don't miss it. And I think, to be honest with you, Jesse, I think a part of the reason I am not dying to do stand up is because no one else is doing it. And as soon as the gates open again and we are able to do it, I'll I'll be back at it, whether I want to or not, because the compulsion to do stand up for me is a compulsion to not fall behind, to not be eclipsed. There's only room for so many. You've got to stay good. The reason I'm good is because I've just worked my tail off and I'm so scared of be, you know, I go out every night and do a set because I think about, okay, if I'm not doing the set, someone else is doing that set and they're going to get better and I'm not. And right now I'm like fine with it because no, everyone's bad right now. Like so I saw someone tweet recently, like we're all going to have to learn how to do stand up again. And I'm like, yeah, this is, it is a muscle. It is a, yes, you'll have muscle memory, but we're all going to be starting from scratch again. And it's kind of delightful. If I was like, you know, hold up with uh, broken legs or something and I couldn't do stand up, I would be having a much worse time than the fact that no one can do it. We'll continue my conversation with Nikki Glazer after a quick break. In just a minute, we'll talk about her work at Comedy Roasts, including maybe the most savage joke she has ever told in public. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. There's more than one science story out there. If you've ever wondered, hummingbird tongues, how do they work? Was the movie Twister scientifically accurate? Or what moons are the best moons? Listen and subscribe to Shortwave, NPR's daily science podcast. If you want to make ends meet in a hip town, the kind with great coffee, lots of dog parks, you're going to need a side hustle. In Brooklyn, maybe you drive rideshare. In Fairhaven, it's more like... Well, it's more like slaying psychic beasts with your custom-balanced throwing knives. Hey, are you from Hunter? Uh, I guess so. Hold on, I have to ask you some stuff. Are you hurt? No. Do you feel yourself developing strange powers? I mean, I saw a ghost once. Uh, Okay, I'm gonna put down no. Okay. So, you're having some sort of monster issue. Oh, um, it's like a pod, I guess? Um, here it is. Is is that what you call it? Like, Like a pod? Yeah, pod works. Oh, it's opening! Morgan leaps back and positions the metal spear she's been carrying on her back. She points it towards the bug, which swipes the spear away just as an electrical bolt fires from the tip. It hits the gate to a petting zoo, and a bunch of baby goats come streaming out. Can we just take a moment to appreciate how cute this is? It's great. I hope someone's filming it. Oh my god, I just love baby goats. (laughs) Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Nikki Glazer, is a stand-up comic and podcast host. Her latest stand-up special, Bangin', is streaming now on Netflix. You mentioned briefly that some time ago you quit drinking. Um, Why did you quit drinking? I really just saw everyone's career who I wanted and who were the most successful driven people. And I just saw that they kind of all had a commonality of being sober from alcohol at least I just started like I don't know I think it was it was or they just at least didn't have a problem with it they weren't getting drunk every night and then all the comedians I was getting drunk with every night they just seemed like nothing ever really grew for them like it just it I just noticed a pattern from my friends and this was when I was 27 and I was also just drinking 
every night because you can you're at a bar and you get free drinks and you're broke so you just want to drink the pain away of like just being broke you know it just it turned into a problem for me I wasn't doing anything belligerent I wasn't putting my life at risk but I just oh you know what it was it was really like the hangover I think if I still could get drunk without suffering a hangover, I probably would. And my life would be way worse than it is now. But the hangover was a real thing (laughs) that I had to quit because I just had a come to Jesus moment. I had a really bad hangover one morning and I just was like, I feel like I'm dying. Like this is the worst I've ever felt in my life. And no one feels sorry for me. You know, it's this, you did it to yourself kind of thing. Like, Oh, you're hungover. Like screw you. Like no one cares. The, The best part about being sick is being babied and nurtured it's just being hung over you get none of that there's just it just was there was no good I could see from it so I read a book that and then I, I stopped from after I read a book and then I was I was done with it and then you know my addictions switched to like a million different things that I still struggle with but nothing that is as d- disabling um in the short term as alcohol I think I, I dodged a bullet with that one did stopping drinking give you perspective on the role that drinking had played in your life when you were drinking? Yes. Especially when it comes to sex and dating. Like I didn't know when I quit drinking that I would not be hooking up anymore. (laughs) Like it was the only reason I was ever able to be close to anyone or let someone in or like be that intimate was that I was inebriated like it helped me get to that point so when I quit drinking I just I didn't see that was going to be a fallout of it and then all of a sudden I was like I haven't even like made out with someone in a really long time and that used to be like a thing I would do and I was like oh yeah it's because you haven't been drunk and so that was the biggest glaring thing that I noticed and then the other thing was just I just if you look at a chart of like my career and my life it just everything started going up from there I was just able to function better and focus more it just it was the best decision I made but that doesn't mean that I am addiction free I'm like someone who really struggles with a lot of stuff but drinking was just one that you know in my with with examples throughout my family I could just see where it was going I like was starting to remind myself of certain family members that uh their behavior really disturbed me as a child and I was like oh wait I sound like that when I'm drunk you know you see enough pictures of yourself and all enough footage that it just bottom line it was getting in in the way of my career and I just that always has come first for me do you feel proud of how funny you are um no yeah I mean yes there are days where I'm like yes I'm so funny I'm like one of the best I like truly believe it I feel it you can't convince me otherwise and then there are days and it really is day by day it's like a lot of days recently with the quarantine and me not getting the validation I so desperately desire I've had this feel like I got asked to do Bill Maher last week on Wednesday they called me to do Thursday's show like to tape it on Thursday and I was like did they know that I'm not Eliza Schlesinger like do they know that they got the right person (laughs) I really did think there was a lapse of judgment because why would I this I just think of myself as like kind of a dumb sex comic why am I going to be on the show with Al Gore like it made me as much as I should have been like wow this is such a cool opportunity I can't believe the honor I just felt like I had tricked someone or there had been some kind of 
mistake. And I'm still having a uh, having trouble thinking that it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a, an error on some producer's part to book me. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's daily. It goes from thinking I'm the best to thinking I'm a fraud. Before we go, I want to talk to you a little bit about performing in roasts, which has been an extraordinarily successful part of your career. The roasts as they exist now, I mean, there are, I think at this point, a few competing roast battle television projects and stage shows. But generally speaking, we're talking about the roasts that happen on on Comedy Central, in which B plus A minus list celebrities are roasted by a series of very skilled joke comics, um, sometimes roast specialist comics, but mostly comics who are great at jokes. And they can be really, really funny. It's also a very odd thing. And I think I was most struck by that because I saw you tell an anecdote about doing the roast of Martha Stewart. And I don't think I'm going to stun anyone when I say that you had not previously socialized much with Martha Stewart. Right. It was the, it was the roast of Rob Lowe and she was, she was one of the people on the dais. Yes. And I know I had never met her before. And you met her backstage and kind of in meeting her had to decide what material you were comfortable (laughs) with doing seconds later on stage or at least minutes later. And I thought like, what a bizarre thing to try and decide what kind of jokes to do about somebody in this particular context where you are allowed to be mean, but also you remain a human being. Yeah. And, um, and like there was a time when the, when the whole idea of it was look at the end of the day, I really love you because you're my actual friend from real <laughs> right, life. Right. <laughs> And you could always go back to that deep knowledge of what was appropriate because you had a real deep relationship. Yes. And here I am. She doesn't know me from any. She has no idea who I am. I mean, nothing to her. And I'm going to get up there and just tell her who she is and and make fun of the maybe things in her life that she's most ashamed of or, you know, and I, I go hard and I don't pull back and I try to go in a different direction than what everyone else is going to go in. And yeah, I had a kind of not an unpleasant exchange with her, but I just expected like, Hey, we're on the same roast. Like maybe she would just be warmer. And I could just tell she's just maybe she maybe wasn't in that moment. She was nervous, whatever it was. I just didn't get a good vibe from her. So I was like, Oh, okay. I'll go a little harder than I normally would. I feel like I'm more justified. The joke I wrote about her being a, a cold mother is probably true based on what I'm experiencing backstage right now. So I'm going to do that joke as opposed to not do it. But I mean, it is like you hit the nail on the head. It is weird. It is weird because you, you meet all these people at this like kind of, uh, you know, half like cocktail party beforehand that they throw you all together and they're filming it and they're filming you guys interacting. It's so awkward. And then you go out there and you have these jokes that you've been working on. So I know what I'm going to say. And it's, it's, it's a whole different beast saying it in front of them. And then, and then the commercial break when it's awkward again, and everyone's just on stage, not, and there's no, you know, assistance up there. There's no one talking to the stars, like makeup people aren't even on stage. You're just sitting next to the people you just said the meanest thing about. You don't even know them. I mean, it's so weird. 
if it's true, does that make it okay? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, unless it's just like making fun of, you know, I was, I, I, Caitlyn Jenner was on the last roast that I did and I had jokes about the car accident that she was in because I was told that, you know, nothing was off limits. And so I had, uh, a joke where I said, um, I, I go, Caitlyn Jenner, what a beautiful woman you hit with your car five years ago. Like I said something like that. And I didn't do the joke because I found out right before the show, like the, the morning of the show, they were like, if there's a joke about someone like her, her, her car accident, she'll walk off stage. And I was like, Oh, okay. Then I won't do those jokes. You guys should have told me sooner. Um, it's never my intent to like make anyone upset, even if the joke is true. Like if it's actually going to trigger them in that way. But if it's something like, I don't know. I just, I feel like if you sign up for a roast, you just sign away any kind of right you have to be like, that hurts. You just don't have it. And I do the same thing. You know, all bets are off for me. Nothing's over uh, off limits for me. And I've been really hurt before by jokes, like really hurt. And I still don't begrudge those comedians from making those jokes. I do, you know, when Bruce Willis is saying a joke that is just scathing about the way that you look, you kind of go, well, Bruce Willis didn't write that. What what comedy writer in that back room was looking at my face and studied it long enough to come up with the fact that I look like Owen Wilson? Like, it's you start thinking, like, how dare that writer? But um, I never I never get mad at anyone about the jokes. Like, I, I can't. And I, I hope that they afford me the same, you know, leniency when it comes to, like, I, I don't feel like a bad person when I do these, even though, man, I have to tap into that side of myself. I want to play a joke from the time that you were on the dais for the roast of Rob Lowe. God, I had such a crush on you when I was a little girl. If only I'd known that's when I had my best shot. <laughs> that is uh, one of the most intense jokes I've ever seen. On stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really twisted. <laughs> well, you know, um, I don't know how that one came about. I mean, it, I guess it came about from the fact that like this guy is like such a heartthrob. And although that wasn't true to me that I didn't have a crush on him, he's someone that I would have had a crush on as a 13 year old girl. And you know, when I was six, when I was underage, I dreamed of like being with Dave Matthews. Now, if that dream would have taken place, that would have been statutory, you know? So the, I think it, it just stemmed from me thinking about like what, I dreamed of this guy back then. Oh, this also fits in with the fact that he had a sex tape with a girl that was really young, you know, like the, 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 it all just lined up and yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. But, um, that one to me didn't even, it would not even cross my mind to, to not go there. Like didn't no, no second guessing that one at all. I just, I don't, I never think about these things until later on. And then I go, yikes, what did, who made you think you could say that? Like, that one was like, uh, I would say in a level of difficulty or a level of going like, oh, that one was like zero for me. I wouldn't have even batted an eye. What is amazing to me about that joke? I mean, it's a great joke, you know, uh, but so is you saying, you know, Jeffrey Ross's face has a dad bod or whatever. Um, right, right. Like that's also a really like that's a similarly funny like if it was just purely about joke. Yeah, uh, that's similarly funny. I mean, I think the thing that makes it devastating 
is that it is a reminder of something that Rob Lowe did in real life that was deeply immoral uh, and a horrible act. And maybe, oh, I mean, he was a young man. We could probably say a horrible mistake. Um, But nonetheless, like something really bad, like way worse than Martha Stewart uh, being uh, manipulating an stocks. <laughs> yes. Or being, a, you know, although that's also bad. <laughs> but sure. Like, no, you're absolutely right. Like, and I, and I think it's my job to call out, especially men who have been gross sexually in any way. And I forget the details of the Rob Lowe thing truly, but like, you know, I remember, um, he was a he when when he was a young man when he was in his early twenties. Uh, there was a sex tape of him having sex with a sixteen-year-old girl. Basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, yeah. That makes me super uncomfortable. And the fact that I went there, but the thing is, I don't, I don't want to let people off the hook for anything. Uh, I, I don't. I didn't like when when Peyton Manning was on the roast of. I believe it was Rob Lowe and they told us we couldn't make fun of any sexual allegations against him. That was his like caveat for doing it, which he hasn't been charged with anything. I understood it, you know, I understood like, but the, the rumors were there and I just didn't really care. And so I wrote a joke about it and I did it and I knew it wouldn't air. There's no chance Comedy Central would air it. I knew Comedy Central would be upset with me about it in the moment, but it, I said it. I think I made some joke about him and doing something gross. And then I was like, the University of Tennessee paid me $16 million not to say. I, I made some joke about a payout he gave someone. I forget what it was, but I made I made a very cutting joke about his allegations. And I felt like, screw you. You don't get to be, you don't get to misbehave like that and then say it's off limits. It's like, well, this did happen. And a woman did lose her life. The reason I didn't want to do that is because there was a vic. I mean, there was a victim in the, in the Rob Lowe one too. I mean, I don't know. I have no rules for myself. It's like, I do joke by joke, but I did. I do have a heart and I don't want to bring up things that are going to trigger people or that are like, uh, there are other victims involved like the the car crash one i felt bad because it was a joke like involving the woman who died and like her family didn't sign up to hear that and so i was like okay i understand taking that joke out but i don't let these guys off the hook very often i just i can't and i'm scared not to but especially on these roasts oh come on you're gonna get it you're good alec baldwin i'm gonna make fun of you for being uh, a short-tempered a a hole, you know, like it's it's you can't avoid that. We're gonna call it out, and so I I do, and I hope that if I do anything illegal and do a roast someday, people call me out for it. Well, Nikki Glazer, I so enjoyed your special, and I'm so glad that you could come back on the show, and uh, I hope we'll talk to you again to some, sometime. Thank you so much, Jesse. I loved it. Nikki Glazer. Her special banging is extremely funny. She also hosts her own podcast, which you should check out. It's called You Up with Nikki Glazer. You can download it with your favorite podcatcher. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California, where my colleague Jesus captured in his house a shiny Pokemon. 
Now, a shiny Pokemon, my notes indicate, is a lot like a regular Pokemon, but in rare, different colors. This particular Pokemon was yellow instead of brown. So congratulations to Jesus. Uh, hopefully he won't get a big head and quit his job. We're all on a journey. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our shiny associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.